great to see you guys. Uh, man, the category is best moment of your life. That's the category category. Um, I'm guessing the romantics would answer uh, my wedding day, right? I'm, uh, I'm guessing the, uh, those who needed a miracle would say a graduation day. Um, I'm guessing the, uh, you know, the, the kind-hearted would say the birth of their firstborn or secondborn or thirdborn or fill in the blank, however many born you have. Um, listen, if, if you start to think about some of the best moments of your life, my guess is 90 or so percent of us, and let's be honest, 99% of percentages are made up on the spot, so 90% of us or so um, would say that the best moment of our life was with someone or somebody or somebodies, right? Um, my guess is, is that it would be a rarity for us to go around right now and the absolute best moment of your life happened by yourself. There may be a few exceptions, okay? And, uh, and then I would argue if it really was the best moment of your life. Um, but for most of us, the most memorable, incredible time in our whole existence happened with others. And I'm pretty sure for the Israelites, it doesn't get better than last week. Like if you walk across a, a, a dry land as sea is parted on your left and your right, I'm pretty sure that's going in the scrapbook. You know what I'm saying? Right? I, I mean, that, that story is going to get shared. Okay? Grandpa's telling grandkids about that one. I mean, that, that story for, I would say, an entire nation, could it get much better? Is there something that, that could have topped it? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, the whole release... Uh, from slavery in Egypt all the way up until the parting of the sea, I, I just, I think for a community of people, best moment of their life. So it's interesting then how powerful when a group of people experience something together, then the question is, how do they respond? So um, in the delivery room, it was me, my wife, a few doctors, one of which I knew, and a bunch of other nurses, and, and my response in that communal moment of an amazing moment in my life was weep for a long time, okay? Um, just crying, you know, Heidi's needed some, Heidi's needing some help from me, some consolation, and I'm just weeping like a baby, you know, as I, as I hold up my daughter like Simba, you know, like, it's, <laughs> right? I mean, it just, so all of you, if you think back to all these awesome moments in your life, the question is, what was your response? Well, tonight, Listen, tonight is such a, a huge night for us. It's a, such a vital night for us for multiple reasons. The first is Egypt is now in the rearview mirror. The Israelites will not go back. Um, they're done. The, the Egyptians are over. The army is killed. And so Exodus now makes a massive shift, right? So it's a huge night for that. Larger than that, the issue at hand this evening is one that, I, that we so desperately need to hear. In fact, I can't think of a teaching in a long while that I felt like was custom made for us and we have to hear it now. And so for all of those reasons, um, post seeing the sea part, tonight we'll get to see the response of the people in Exodus chapter 15. So if you guys can open your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Andrew, if you can put up my picture. This is where we left last week. The Israelites look back. After God closes the sea, 
And what they see, the scripture says, are dead bodies. Uh, We know that there were 600 chariots, and by many calculations, there could have been up to three soldiers in each of those chariots. And then we knew that we know that there were also horsemen, and we know that there was also some form of infantry. Okay, so the army that Egypt had sent was uh, quite extensive; it was massive, we could say. So the dead bodies is not a few. Uh, God allows them to get so close to the edge of the beach where the Israelites were at that then the the beach would wash them up almost immediately. So 1.5 or so million Israelites look back on a rocky beach as the sun is beginning to rise and they see death. So what and how will they respond? Verse 1 of Exodus 15. (laughs) Then Moses and the people of Israel sang... This song to the Lord. So that they get on the the other side, and the scripture says, then. Many implications that we have to take from this word. 1.5 million or so, all somehow going to somehow simultaneously, going to somehow simultaneously understand lyrically a song that they'll now sing together. I can't explain all the intricacies of this, but the response of seeing the death on the seashore, of being liberated, of being freed, is singing, which you really connect with, don't you? Come on, windows down on a 70 degree day, right? Radio up, and it just, it's just go time. You, lose, I mean, you just lose all understanding of everything, right? Top of your lungs. It almost doesn't matter what the song is at times, right? Come on. I mean, some of the days in the past week, man, it just, there's some, something freeing in singing. But the scripture says in this case that they're singing to whom? They sang this song to the Lord, and the uh, Lord there is capitalized. It's the word for Yahweh in the Old Testament, yod heh vad They get on the other side, and they start singing a song to the Lord. It made me realize that there's a lot of things that we sing to. And listen, when I was in youth group, come on, the classic adage, the classic teaching was, you know, you, you are what you listen to. You know, you, if you're going to listen to XYZ person and you're going to hear all the filth that comes from them, then it's really going to affect you. And, you know, all the youth group kids would hear that over and over and over, and then they would listen to more of that. Um, and when you start to think about it, some of the most used cliches are some of the most true. Think about the gods that you sing about. Come on now. We, we, all have, we all have a song that we're not so proud that we sang, right? Or three or four. Or uh, iPods full, right? There's a song or two that if someone caught us singing it, if they didn't join in, we would get fairly embarrassed, right? And so think just for a second. The... The gods that we sing to. And in this case, what the scripture rallies all of us around is these people, all of them together, are singing to one God, and in this case, to the Lord. And here's what their opening line is. They say this, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed. We got something to sing. We got something to say because our God has done something. He's moved. He's triumphed. Again, I I can't explain 
how all of these people know the lyrics, okay? Like, I don't know if Moses, you know, was barking them out before, kind of a, a round setting, you know, where he's leading them and they're responding. We don't know, but we get this picture of a full community's worth that is just going to it, okay? And the scripture uses this really interesting word here in verse 2. The Lord, they say, is my strength. They don't, see, they don't say, has given me strength, like we so often communicate. They say, the Lord is my strength. I have no strength apart from him. Without his strength, I'm nothing. The Lord is my strength. And look at this. And my, what's the word? Come on. And my song. It's going to be several times tonight. I, I just pause to ask each of us, and this is myself included, I, I feel like I need tonight um, maybe more than anyone else. Is the Lord your song? Uh, Heidi and I used to very cutely, if that's a word, we, we used to tell each other that we, that we were each other's heart song, you know. And uh, so I would say, like, you're my heart song, babe. I don't even really know what that means. Um, it's somehow like my heart and music and, you know, I don't know how it all works, but it seemed really poetic and romantic. And um, is God your song? An incredibly cheesy metaphor. Like if you were a cardinal and you had a walkout song, which we all dream we had, Right? Those of you guys that work in an office, you wish, like, as you're coming up the elevator, your tune was, like, playing as you walked out. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's not would the song be Christian. It just, is God your song? These people say, the Lord is my strength and my song. And look at this. And he has become my salvation. In other words, there was something else maybe that there was salvation before that, but now he's become it. There was something else maybe that they believed collectively as a nation that would save them. Imagine this. They've spent 436 years in slavery. Okay. So they got something to say. They got something to celebrate. This is my God. And here's the powerful word. And I'm going to hang here so much tonight. Here's what they say. And I will, what's the word? Praise him. Only time in the whole book of Exodus that we see the word praise. If you turn to the book of Psalms, it's like a million. But in Exodus 1. When have you said praise God and not really meant it? Because we have a case study tonight, how much of your praise five minutes ago would you say was empty or rehearsed or robotic? In other words, like as we're singing, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again. Maybe you've spent enough time in some setting that praise has just naturally become part of how you move and act. But really, as you were singing those words, the truth of them was the farthest thing from your mind and your heart. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if I sing praise, words that I really mean, That is incredibly different than Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again off tune like it was there, right? How many times in language have you said praise God and it was a joke or you didn't mean it at all? How much of our language 
as believers is incredibly empty. The awesome thing about the Israelites, and maybe it's not so awesome, but at least for us, we get to look back and learn, is they sing an entire song that is packed, packed full of incredible truth, and in days from now, they're complaining. Days. They've just, what I've described to you has probably had the, the greatest moment of their life, collectively, as a community. And now they're wrapped in to this time of worship as a community. They're praising. The question is, do they mean it? Is it empty? Is it real? Or is it just happenstance? The Lord is my strength and my song, they say, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. I love the fact that they look back at the lineage of generations worth of slavery, also patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Joseph, that have set up this covenant that God is now bringing forth. They say, this is the God of my fathers. We're going to praise him. And then verse 3, a really interesting statement, the Lord is a man of war. They sing. They're singing this, right? Like, these seem like strange lyrics, don't they? The Lord is a man of war, right? And you picture like, you know, uh, kids holding the, the legs of their dads, and they're, you know, the Lord is a man of war. Well, why do they say man, and, and how is he a man of war? They've just watched God annihilate an army, and they attribute the killing to God. Rightfully so. Now, why do they call him a man? I, I think in this case, as much study as I've done on this particular component, they certainly have already called him Yahweh in the song, so they recognize his Godhead, but He has interacted with them in a very real, close, intimate way. You see what I'm saying? So to call God now the the man piece, it's almost as if it's, it's a precursor to Christ coming in the flesh. It's almost as if they've experienced God so intimately, so much like you and I would. That the best line they have here is he is a very active, close, intimate, almost in this case manly God. And to those folks that think that God is a woman, this is a good argument against it. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and, he has cho- and his officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Again, they're clearly communicating this. Verse 5, the floods covered them, and look at this, they went down into the depths like a stone. Remember last week I said there's many theories about the water that they crossed. Many people that think it was marsh. Okay, six inches deep maybe that they crossed on a rocky path that God really didn't part it. I'm pretty sure this alludes in a song to the depths of the sea that they crossed. Amen? They went down into the what? Depths like a stone. I can't make that say something else. So I sit back from these first five verses from what we would call maybe the first stanza, verse number one. And I have a statement to make. It is easy to praise God in the easy times and it is also easy to forget. Think about that for a second. It is easy to praise God in the easy times, and it is also easy to forget. We would say this is softball praise and worship time, right? Come on. You've just seen the sea part. How could you not get on the other side and all of a sudden go crazy in worship? But when has God so obviously moved in your life? demonstrated his power, loved you, forgiven you, 
very clearly shepherded you, and yet you forgot to praise. See what I'm saying? As easy as it is to praise God in the post-parting of the sea moments of your life, could we agree? It's also just as easy to forget. I've uh, come to believe, and maybe you have too, that the list is endless of reasons to praise God, right? Maybe you've experienced that too. I started journaling just to kind of test this theory, okay? Got about half an hour in, and I got carpal tunnel, all right? I was like, I can't, I can't keep going because the list is innumerable. Like, I, there's so much to praise him about that is non-circumstantial, by the time I even, listen, by the time I even get to the circumstances that are surrounding my here and now, it's like days and days after the journaling has begun. Do you guys understand? But we don't see it that way. Okay, we let our circumstances dictate our praise instead of the insurmountable reasons to praise God just for being God. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? And so when that's the case, when that happens, then the forgetfulness is shrouded by all of the pain, the doubt, the here and now. Instead of flooded by the case that God has made to be praised. And that case, very, very extensive. I mean, we would all say, why wouldn't they praise God on the other side of this? But that starts to get really real for you and I, doesn't it? We could all, like, have a moment of accountability. Why didn't you praise God in that time? I mean, it was, like, clear as day that God was gracious on you, and yet you either gave someone else credit, gave yourself credit, or, even worse, just went on your way. When God inhabiting the praises of your people is at your access. Here's what I've learned. Um, one of the greatest reasons that we gather together as a community is to get in a rhythm and to remember to praise together. Like one of the greatest reasons why we come together, certainly learning God's word, certainly studying to be missionaries so that we can walk out and live for Christ in our world, but my friends, one of the greatest reasons we gather is to come together and corporately praise. Not with empty words or phrases that we've learned to say in Christendom, but because our heart has been wrecked with the gospel, changed forever, and we glorify God in light of it. It's easy, and yet it's easy to forget. So because of that, some hard pieces for us tonight to wrestle with. They continue in stanza 2, verse 2, or bridge maybe you could call it. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Their language gets really strange right now. Uh, first of all, the right hand, 50 mentioned in the Old Testament of God's right hand alone, okay? Apparently God was a righty, right? I mean, like, the, the, the strength and the power that his right hand represents continually comes up, both in judgment and of love, both synonymously. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the, here we go, verse 8. Have you ever sang this in a worship song? At the blast of your nostrils, the water's piled up. Right. Have you ever said nostril in a worship song? No. Brandon, let's fire that up later. Come on, dude. That's beautiful, right? But isn't this strange a little bit? Like if we were just to take this at face value, and especially if you were to read the Psalms, is, is it like we should celebrate 
how God's messed up our enemies? Let's start again in verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious and power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. They're singing this. Right. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. What is the application for us? Are we all of a sudden like to start thinking about our enemies, praying that God overthrows them, and then come together and worship that, right? Like, God, I'm really thankful you, uh, you, you, know, you gave that dude a little piece of humble pie this week. Praise you, Lord. You know, like, is, is that our response? Well, look at this. This gives us some indication. At the blast of your nostrils, verse 8, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. How about that word, you know? The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill to them. I will draw uh, my sword. My hand shall destroy them in the key of A. And finally, in verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Does does anyone else think this is just a weird worship song at this point? But I tell you what, when I start singing, sin has lost its power, death has lost its sting, and I know the representation of those things. I tell you what, when I start singing about the fact that the enemy has no handle or hold on me anymore in Christ... When I start thinking about the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19, anybody? Like when I start thinking about Christ stomping on the head of the serpent, when I start imagining how the gospel was portrayed already in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, when I start to imagine these things about our God conquering, triumphing over the enemy, I'm sorry, my heart starts to explode with some praise. Why? Because what it means for me is eternal hope. What it means for you is eternal hope. What it means for all of us is the enemy has no power over us. And though in a very lesser degree here, it's Egyptians and Israelites, to a much greater degree, it's Satan, it's death, it's sin. And they have no power over us at all in Christ. And that is reason to praise. Because you know the hold that it has. You know how strong it is. So when we get together, part of that insurmountable list of reasons, some of them better be in your heart, death has no hold on me at all. It has no sting. I live in Christ. This is beautiful stuff, right? But the question still remains in my heart after verse 2. It's still there. If they're praising now, how can they so easily just in days begin to forget? Does that make these words empty? Is this praise not authentic? Is it not genuine? Is it not real? How are we to learn from this? Verse 3. Who is like you, verse 11, O Lord, among the gods? And listen, I just, by the way, I'm sinfully obsessed. Sinfully is probably the wrong word there. I'm really obsessed with lowercase gods in the scripture. I love when the Bible notes it as a lowercase, right? Who is like you, O Lord, capitalized among the lowercase gods? Well, we better stop and wrestle with that one. If you had to answer that tonight, not with words, too easy, too easy to fake it with actions, with life. If you were to answer literally the question, who is like you, O Lord, among the lowercase gods? What would it appear like your answer would be? 
Is that your statement of faith? There is no one like you. Or is your life portraying that the lowercase gods, the idolatry, the relationships, the pursuit of money, the jobs, the marriage, the children, the culture, all of these things, the lust, the pursuits, the dreams that we have almost sinfully in our hearts, are those lowercase gods competing? Uh, speaking of youth group, many of you guys know I was a youth pastor for seven years, okay? Um, huge heart for students, love youth ministry. You get to do things that I could never do in this setting. Uh, I've talked about it before, and we just had some of the wildest, craziest games ever. Um, I've talked about this before, but just for fun, because it just popped in my mind again. We, we did this thing where we made the, the longest jump rope in uh, what I considered in Guinness Book of World Records in the world. It stretched, literally, it would, it would have stretched this entire room and then some. And we realized that it didn't have enough gumption, like, going around. And so then I duct taped the whole thing, and we still, I couldn't get it to go. So then I, I duct taped two liter bottles of soda in the middle, okay? And I put a seventh grade boy in the middle, and, um, and he, you know, Alex Hottleman was his name. Still remember his name, trust me. And uh, the thing goes around and, unfortunately, uh, sideswipes him. And literally breaks his tibia, like right there in youth ministry, okay? So, um, <laughs> when we started Matthias, uh, Jeff, Pastor Jeff so rightly added like a, a greater insurance policy for us, for some of my wild antics, okay, just in case. Um, but I always did uh, fun, fun things in youth ministry, and, and one of the classic cliches in youth ministry is the time pie chart, right? Have you guys ever done this? Have you seen this? Like, where do you spend your time? Right? And, and then you, like, pie chart the whole thing. And then the, the metaphor, the image that you were supposed to step back and be like, all right, is God in your life or not? And, and you know, and uh, so all these youth group kids, they had, like, you know, quiet time, which I, I hate as a phrase in general. They had it at, like, 5%, you know, and church stuff was, like, 10%. So, uh, you know, all the youth pastor mentality is like, we got them, you know, because... 40% is school, yep, no God there, and, you know, all, like all this stuff. Well, if we were to do that now and then use that same idea, the question wouldn't be the percentages of your life. The question would be, is the focal point in all of your life the worship and praise of the Lord? I used to think that God could be segmented off somehow by the percentages of where we spent the hours of our day. But as God has continued to teach me the gospel, what I've realized is God infiltrates every piece of our day. As I work, I work unto the Lord. As I sleep, I sleep unto the Lord with great purpose so I can wake up to be on mission again. See what I'm saying? Even sleeping is intentional and purposeful. And some of you are way too purposeful with it, you know? So are the lowercase gods dominating your life? Or could you say, there is no one like you? No one else sits on the throne, only you. Who is like you, middle of verse 11, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Now this, this got me, this is crazy. The people are singing about his steadfast love. By the way. The very first time God's love is talked about in the Bible, right here. 
How do the people know that God is loving? They have, by our scriptural reference, not heard the voice of God speak about his love. Genesis does not talk about God's love one time. The first 14 chapters of Exodus, not one time. And now all of a sudden the people are responding to God's love. They say, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to be uh, to your ho- a holy abode. Listen, listen, listen. This is so awesome. This is so awesome. It's as if you don't need to talk about God's love to know God is loving. And I just love that truth. We've gotten so accustomed to talking about it. And not that we shouldn't. To preaching about it. And not that we shouldn't. To studying it. And not that we shouldn't. But listen, God's love runs way deeper than the words of man. And someone can look me in the eye all day long and say, God is love and God loves you. But you know what? The depth of the truth of him pulling me out of the bondage of death and my sin, it's as if I don't need to hear that God is loving to know that he is. You guys see what I'm saying? These people, all of a sudden, just overwhelmed and overcome by being redeemed, that they attribute it to the love of God. Verse 4, here comes the bridge, key change. Verse 14, the peoples have heard. This gets interesting. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Felicia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling uh, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. This is foreshadowing what's to come. They're saying, because of what God has done here, then all these peoples that we're headed to better start getting scared. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are all as still as a stone till your people, O oh Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have. What's the word? Come on. What's the word? Purchase. How in the world do they understand that? I don't have any other explanation, but God is putting the praises of God on their lips. They know even now that they were bought with a price, that they were purchased, that God has made them a people of his own possession. And so I just got to say, if this purchase was amazing and expensive, then how much greater was our purchase in Christ? Come on, I mean, God ultimately is showing us very symbolically what he would do in Jesus and, and the sense of being purchased here far, far, far is underneath our being purchased by the blood of Christ, God's only son. Have you ever seen this before in this song? Many people call this the song of Moses. I think it should just be called the song of the sea, the song of all the Israelites, the, the song in almost the wilderness. Like this isn't just Moses. Like, he may be, like, up there doing the thing, you know, but it's everybody, right? You will bring them, verse 17, in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, which we got to just love, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, they say. And then this song makes quite a declaration. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Listen, listen, please, please, please. They get to a moment where they believe their God will not be conquered. 
where their God will not be defeated, where they understand the eternal nature of the victory and the triumph in their God. And yet, when the circumstances get heavy, when life all of a sudden feels like it's burying you, in those moments, does God still reign? That's the question. Because if we were to confess, if I were to confess, certainly there have been times where in light of my circumstances, it's as if God has like fallen off the throne for a second. Where I've started to doubt if he's still victorious. Either God sits on the throne always and forever or not. And these people say, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Listen, in a very real sense, could you imagine when this song was over, like what people were doing? Like, did anyone else like step back and be like, how did we just sing all the same lyrics, you know? Right? And you got like the little boy who's next to his, you know, 95-year-old grandma who's way out of tune, you know? Right? One, one of the, listen, one of my greatest memories, you guys know, my grandmother is an absolute saint. She's 90 years old. She's in a nursing home, can't hear anything. I love her to absolute death. She is a believer to this day. Every time we talk, I mean, we just talk about the word. It's amazing. She can't hear the scripture that I'm saying, but I hear hers. Um, and I, I still remember standing in church next to her, okay, in the church building, First Reformed Church of Wichert, Illinois, when I was like five, six, seven years old, wearing clip-on ties and fluorescent pants, standing next to my grandma and just hearing her belt out praises to God incredibly off-tune, you know? She, she, she could not hear. And you know what? I was just like, praise be to God. Some of you guys need to hear that, right? You get so self-conscious about your keyedness and praise. Listen, don't worry about it. Just go for it, all right? And stand by other people who are struggling too. Verse 19. <laughs> we make a little choir together. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, the scripture says. And now to close this image, this song, this gathering. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a what? Took a tambourine. That came out of Egypt somehow, you know. They salvaged a tambourine out of the deal, you know. They were walking by. They, they saw some poor kid, and some poor Egyptian kid with a tambourine. And Miriam was like, nope, you know. It was like five-finger discounted that thing, you know. Remember, God had said, like, plunder Egypt. Tambourine made it out. I'm pretty sure she didn't weave that as they were crossing the sea, you know. <laughs> then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. Look at this. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Right? I mean, all of a sudden, this thing just turns into a party. A whole bunch of women, tambourines, excitement, people just joyous, genuine joy in celebration. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. Next slide.
How do you know? Like, how do you know if what you're singing or saying is true? What's the gauge? How do you know when you're driving your car down the road and you're thinking in your mind, praise be to God, how do you know if that's really the motive of your heart? Incredibly difficult, isn't it? I already mentioned in the book of Psalms, the word praise comes up um, crazy amount of times. And in a moment, moment of vulnerability here, um, there have definitely been times in my life where the praise of God has been the thing I was supposed to do because of my position. Times as a youth pastor, times as a pastor, where the worship of God was the thing that I was supposed to do. And so what do you do? You cue the praise God language. Even though in my heart, I was like, I don't know if I can praise you. I don't know if I want to praise you. Because right now, this thing is so overwhelming, I don't, there's not reason to praise. If you've ever felt that before, if you ever feel like you've said praise God and not meant it, then this is for you as it is for me. First, here's my heart. The psalmist says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will what? My lips will praise you. Okay. So the first piece in understanding, I believe, genuine praise is in response to what God has done. You guys see? Because your steadfast love is better than life, because you are literally better than everything, then my lips will praise you. So the times when it has been empty for me, the times when it has meant nothing, the times when it has been lip service, the times when it has been devoid of the passion of my heart, the times when I just went through the motions were the times that I wasn't responding to God's initiation. They were the times I was trying to muster it up or fight through. But when I begin just for a second, come on, when I begin to think of his grace and dwell on his love and imagine his glory, not just in rhetoric but in truth, I cannot help but worship. So the prayer is do not cloud me, life, culture, world, enemy, with thoughts that would distract me. God, you flood my heart with reasons why I should and can continually praise. And it begins with believing that you are the essence of life. Then the psalmist says this, check this out. Every day I bless you and praise your name. What does he say? Come on. Forever and ever. Does anyone want that? Yes. You know, like every day I praise you. And not just every day, but at all times of every day. I just, I praise you. I see you for who you are. It's not just when I get on the other side of the sea. It's when I'm in the worst moment of my life. The hardest moment of my existence where I believe again 
that those things do not change who you are, God. And that's what the Israelites are going to struggle with. They get on the other side of the sea. Oh, God is awesome. And then they realize they have no water or food. And now all of a sudden, God deserves wrath. But what if in the hard times, in the painful times, in the times that you were struggling the most, were drenched with the deepest praise? Because you believe that God could take everything away, including life itself, and you would have life in Christ. Finally, the psalmist says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. Come on. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. Think about the things we say. The damaging things that are coming out of our mouth. The gossip, the judgments, the air. Listen, can we just agree as a community, as a church, that there would be tremendous power in a group of people responding to the power of the gospel continually, not just conveniently. So I look at all those things and I say, I want that. I never want to go through the motions. I don't want it to be lip service. I don't want it to just be on the other side of the sea. Then what do we do? And I believe here's what we do. We pray. Check this out. God, in response to your steadfast love, guide my heart to praise you and you alone. Let's start there, right? Guide it. God, in response to you, to what you've done, to who you are, to your character, help me, God, praise you every day all day and in all times and then tonight church collectively we say purge me of empty praise oh God purge me so tonight our God has triumphed not over an Egyptian army but over the very thing that we're born into that holds us so tightly, sin and death, he's triumphed. And because of that, scripture says, now we're more than conquerors. And so church, stand up with me. Come on, stand up with me. We have an opportunity right now. No need to fake it if you're faking it. But if now you stand in awe again, reminded of the power of God, reminded that he can purge us of empty phrases, we stand again as a church and literally say, praise be to God. He reigns forever and ever. Anybody? There's no one else that will reign. There's no one else that will sit on the throne. We praise you, God. So church... Let's praise Him. Let's worship Him. Let's glorify Him together. Come on.